You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. It's been a hot minute since we've had a show, but we thought, I thought, who better to break that long silence than Pastor Brian Sauvet. Brian, how are you today? Oh, man, I am doing so well. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Brian, one of the things we're going to talk about in this show is going to be the topic of why and how Christians should think about the topic of relocation. It's been a hot button issue, I think, for a lot of Christians. I've seen terms floating around the internet like left UGs, right? People Mm -hmm. are fleeing from California. Can't really blame them on that front. Yeah. And so we're going to dig into this, Brian. But before we do that, I want to ask you, about a very winsome sermon series. Well, it's actually Sunday School series <laughs> that you're doing. Yeah, let's do um, it. It really, to me, embodied maybe, I'm not sure why the Gospel Coalition hasn't picked it up yet, Yeah, but it's titled Things That Will Get You Canceled and Why They Matter. So, Brian, first of all, just maybe for the, I've listened to it, but for those who haven't, what kind of topics are you discussing in your How to Get Canceled Sunday School series? Yeah, so th- this whole class is, it's just an exercising an exercise in blaspheming the the false demon gods of the age. So uh, we're hitting all the big ones, you know, egalitarian feminism, uh, evolutionary nonsense, uh, the 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 gay stuff. So I think I think one upcoming class will be called um, calling things gay. One of them was <laughs> calling your husband Lord. Um, this last Sunday was. <laughs> Oh, it was laughing, chuckling at evolutionists while patting them on the head and saying, that's nice, dear. That was the full title of last week's. <laughs> so it's just, it's just a fun time. It's a fun time. Yeah. I love mm-hmm, it. So mm-hmm. for, for those interested, um, I also saw that you started a Sunday School podcast. Of course, yeah. I was listening to it on the Refuge app, which I encourage people to check out. But they can also find the Sunday School podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Of course, we'll yeah. provide a link for that in this show as well. One of the things, Brian, I want to ask you particularly about this and maybe why you decided to do this sermon series. But one of the things that I've seen maybe over the last couple decades, mainstream Christian culture, the way that we've tended to view cultural engagement has been this sort of let's be subtle, let's not be overt, Mm -hmm. right? We got things in the the media entertainment world that were like veggie tales, right? We got facing the giants and people are like, oh, this is going to subtly just work under the surface, and people are going to be radically transformed and changed. <laughs> um, somehow that didn't work. Somehow. Um, and one of my personal favorite words that's related to this, Brian, is winsomeness. Winsomeness. Um, I'm a winsome guy. That's why it's called the Hard Men Podcast, and we talk about the, the lies of feminism, right? <laughs> when I think of you, when I think Eric Kahn, I think winsome and nuanced. Those are the two words <laughs> that immediately jump into mind. <laughs> Yeah, nuance especially is uh, one of my, Mm -hmm. I think it's a spiritual gift, Brian. (laughs) I'm not going to lie about that. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, But one of the questions I want to ask you, Brian, is is related to all of this. Just from a practical, you know, we love the, we know the church loves to be pragmatic today, but from a standpoint of like, does this work? Like, has this been an effective strategy in the church to influence the culture? Oh, man. No, I don't think it has been. And, and I think that it's operating on just a fundamentally wrong principle that misunderstands the nature of what we're even doing. 
which mm. is we're in a brawl. That's, I mean, I was just teaching the chapel this morning at St. Brendan's and we were, we're in Ephesians six where Paul's saying, you don't wrestle against flesh and blood, you know, but then he doesn't go on to say, because you're not wrestling at all. He goes on to say, no, it's much bigger than you're wrestling with the, with the powers and principalities and the heavenly places. And it, it, we're in this brawl. And so often the, the cultural engagement strategy of the church has been, let's find overlap and common ground, you know, common language in the neutral sphere where we can get together and win some credit with them where they're like, you know, I care about the poor too. Wow. You know, as a Democrat, I, well, they think they care about the poor. I also care about the poor. And, and then somehow that will trick them into adopting biblical ethics on the rest of the stuff and, and, and make them deny the 80% of everything else. It's more like, you know, that, that apocryphal Martin Luther quote that is not really Luther, but it's attributed to him about something like, if I'm faithful, if the soldier's, you know, faithful on every part of the battlefield, except that point where the enemy is attacking, he's a coward. He's a faithless soldier. It's right. It, it's the points where the enemy's attacking that we need to go and stand and say the, the sentences that they hate with particular vigor. Like That's where we need to be. Yeah, I think that's really huge. There's really two places um, that I've seen this recently. Um, the first is a subject that we've talked a lot about. Um, our friend Ben Garrett has named his woodworking company after it. Mm -hmm. uh, but even recently, uh, we have a little Doug Wilson Cannon Press older book. Uh, it's just got like stories uh, throughout church history. Mm -hmm. um, so we read those at family worship time. And the one the other night was on Boniface. And man, talk about a guy that it, this is not how our culture thinks at all. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, Thor's oak. Mm -hmm. um, he goes and he, he says, okay, well, I'm going to cut down your idolatrous oak tree. I'm going to build a church out of it. Yeah. Um, again, not winsome. This isn't about subtle engagement. This is about you are worshiping idols and I'm going to come and I'm going to point you to the true and living God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The other one that I think of, just because I happen to be reading through Kings, is I think Kings, you could say one of the main themes of that book is confronting and going to war with the idols of Baal. Mm -hmm. And throughout the book from Elijah and Elisha, you have the prophets of Baal being slaughtered. You have Elijah saying to the people, stop limping between two opinions. If God is the Lord, then worship him. Yeah. And so it's, it's really not this subtle, you know, long game. It's not the Tim Keller, like, we just want to have faithful presence. Mm. We don't want to tell them what's right or wrong. We just want to ha participate in faithful presence. Mm. Um, so that's where I've seen it. And I thought, you know, again, I don't think this strategy works. I think you're absolutely right with the Sunday School series. These things have to be confronted directly and head on. Yeah. The other question I have for you, Brian, is, is just when you look at the effect of that on your people, mm -hmm. right? I'm thinking of things like I've heard John MacArthur say it. I've heard Doug Wilson say it. They say, if you want soft hearts, you have to preach hard. Mm -hmm. um, have you seen that play out in the church as you've dealt with these issues and just addressed them head on? Yes, absolutely. In, in fact, that is the main first order thing I'm trying to do with a series like this. I, I do not labor under the delusion that I am going to convince masses of idolaters to worship Christ by mocking Baal for being on the potty, you know, like the equivalent, you know, yeah. that's not necessarily the first order thing I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to first do is strengthen our people to stand 
in exactly the areas where I expect them to be attacked. Like, where are they going to be attacked ideologically today? Anthropology, sexual ethics, origins, those kind, the, the value and nature of what a human is. Like, that's where they're going to be attacked. So what I'm going to do as the, the, the shepherd is I'm going to try and get out front and I'm going to try to punch first. And then if you punch first, then they go, oh, wow, actually, may, I, I, I had been hearing all of this, you know, chatter about how, you know, maybe, maybe I should think differently about evolution or maybe I should think differently about sexual ethics or, you know, maybe, maybe the egalitarians have some, you know, some good points. And instead, it's like, no, we need to mercilessly attack those things, mercilessly throw down the idols, not try to reform them, not try to have polite debates with them, but actually just say, you know, to hell with them, to hell with egalitarian feminism, to hell with evolutionary nonsense, uh, to hell with fill in the blank. Literally, that's where they're from. That's where they'll take you. And so... Let's strengthen our people in these areas. And we've seen that where I can, you know, I can think of specific young men and their families in the church that two years ago we were sitting down with and getting to know and, and going like, oh, okay, you're, you're a dual income, no kids by choice, wife working in the marketplace, m- maybe making more than you or, you know, you have this trajectory, oh, we'll wait a couple more, you've been married for four years, waiting a couple more years to start having kids, you know, kind of adopted this winsome stra- strategy of winsomeness, of niceness, as evangelism. And and I can think of many families like that, that now today, where I'm actually like, okay, calm down, baby, like, come back it up. <laughs> you know, you do actually <laughs> have to like, also be be righteous, be kind, like those are biblical uh, values as well, fruits of the spirit. Um, let's, you know, and that's great. I'd rather have to rein somebody in than have to be like, come on, let's go. Move, move, do, do something as yeah, you're do smoking something. it with a stick. You know, so yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely been the case. I think, Brian, one of the things that I noticed um, with a, a lot of the older clergy, so like as I was coming into the pastorate, one of the strategies I saw a lot of, especially in the Reformed Church, was they would preach a faithful expositional sermon, but they would just conveniently not mm-hmm. address that idol. And again, it, it, it maybe makes you a little more comfortable in the moment, but the long term of it is, yeah, you're going to have people who look like the world. Um, these sins, these idolatrous sins, they just get more entrenched in people's lives. And so it's like an even bigger blow up later on down the road. And what I've actually found is, you know, Twitter and then talking to people outside of Twitter, getting to know them. It's so much more encouraging when people come to you and be like, wow, I read your tweet and I was so offended mm-hmm. and I started studying it and I started thinking about it and you're right and we're repenting. That's mm-hmm. so much yep. more encouraging, I think, to see, but it's never going to happen unless you confront it head on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're not going to, I mean, the, the, the idols of the day, they, the way that they ascend is by the church's permission. I mean, think about that biblical theological theme from Canaan and the conquest Mm. of Canaan. What was supposed to happen is that they were supposed to, over time, displace the enemy, throw down their high places and green groves, utterly destroy them, sow salt in their fields, you know, the equivalent. And instead, they, they, you know, did this sort of, um, what's the word? They did 
pluralism. Yeah, there you go. Pluralism. Yeah. yeah. You know, we'll do our thing over here, but they can do their thing and, and we'll intermarry with them. And, you know, what? That's you're, you're one generation away from utter apostasy. And what we try to do is a similar thing where we just, and we do it on the level of definitions where we say that, well, that's because most of those things aren't, they're just operating in a neutral sphere. And we need to say, no, that's a religious sphere. That's a, that's a, that's a subset of the kingdom of God that the Lord has dominion over already. And so we're going to go walk in that and, and apply that and believe that and, and, and worship the Lord there in those spots. We're not going to settle for worshiping the Lord in our high place, in our church, and then leaving theirs alone. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's where you go. You go to their high place. You go right there and you start, you know, poking it in the eye, poking their idol in both eyes. You know, that's that's what we need to be doing. Yeah, I think it's a good it's a good kind of metaphor and picture, I think, um, in the early chapters of Scripture and the conquest of Canaan and stuff like that, you know, sowing salt in their fields. That's really, I think, what we need to do cultural in the sense of like cultural warfare, like going to evolution. We're going to go sow salt in their field so mm-hmm. they can't bear any fruit because it's a lie and it's demonic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah. having that sort of, that's a totally different mindset, I think, than the controlling notion of the day is empathy. Um, mm-hmm. One of the really interesting things, I was talking to Michael Foster about this recently, but Ed Friedman's book, The Failure of Nerve, um, it's about leadership. He's actually, I think he's like, he might be like a, a Jewish rabbi or something like that, but really good mm-hmm. book. I've heard Rich Lusk and Alistair Roberts talk about it as well. But one of the things he points out is he said, you know, the failure of leadership today is that we try to be the, what he calls the middler. Like we try to cut through the middle position. We try to keep everybody happy. He said, and empathy r- rules the day. But he said, the problem is what happens when empathy is in control is that we allow the victims and the fringe people who are actually the least productive, the least competent, the least helpful in the organization, we let them run the narrative and they start to steer the ship. And then what happens is your, your institution or organization, your church, it will sink to the lowest, you know, to that level, basically. Yeah. And yeah. so it's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's pretty basic stuff, but really helpful in today that like pastorally, he'll actually say, he said, you need to be a self-differentiated leader, meaning you need to be clear about your vision and direction. And he said, you ought to be pissing people off. Mm-hmm. Like if a feminist is pissed in your church, that means your leadership is, is probably good. It's at least, yeah. you know, going in the right direction. So I think that, oh yeah, you know, it, it helps understand like the dynamic of, of a pastor. Like your job is not just to keep the peace and make sure everybody's not fighting and, you know, no. we have to tackle these tough issues. Yeah, your job is health of the flock, the actual health of the flock. And in today's world, which is rampant with, with goats, with uh, and actually with church strategies, ministry strategies that almost seem designed to produce goats, people who ha- are comfortably believe that they are Christians and they're not. They they yeah. they're not at all. They they're not regenerate. They don't confess the the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and they're never actually they never actually even have anything said to them in the average Sunday that would reveal that to them, where they would go, "I hate what you just said." And you, and you go, well, it's true. And it's actually centrally true. And you can't, you need to love this if you worship the Lord. And like, you know what? I'm out. You have to be preaching people out all the time. Every, you know, I think of 
this is true of many truths, but especially those, again, those where the enemy's attacking truths. Yeah. When you say those out loud and you just have eyes in your head, believe the Bible, and just simply say that you believe the Bible on these things, sexual ethics comes to mind. Um, the relationship, you know, what is a man, what is a woman comes to mind. The result of that is, is going to be twofold all the time. In any given congregation, some of the people are going to be preached out. They're going to be like, I want nothing to do with this. But, but the rest of the people will be preached further up and further in. And they're going to be steeled now to where, like when I say that one of the class topics is calling things gay as a, as a value, like being able to, the, I want the men of my church to be able to look at, um, a, you know, a, a cultural example of somebody acting really soft, of a man behaving very femininely, and just look at it and say, that's gay, you yeah. know? And in many churches today, if, if, a, if a man were to do that, they would be like, oh, you know, that's really, you, know, you, might, you might actually harm and offend people and drive them out with that kind of language. <laughs> we, we need to be sensitive to our same-sex attracted neighbors. And you'd say, yes, I want to love my same-sex attracted neighbors by telling them that what they're doing is gay. And that yeah. it is wicked and that they will not inherit the kingdom of God if they don't, if they don't just actually anathematize the thing and say, I hate right. that. Even though that was, it characterized me. I hate it. Just as much as the pornography addict should hate the porn and the, the, the greedy man should hate the greed when he comes to repentance and increasingly over time hate the thing. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's going to be misunderstood when you do this. People are going to think you're just a shock jock. And, and I even address this in the class. Like we're, we're not just trying to be shock jocks. We're not, we're not trying to get clicks and ratings. That's not what we're doing here. We're trying to put steel in the spine of the saints to stand in the face of the counter discipleship efforts of false gods that are all around them. And uh, it's going to be misunderstood by many people and they're going to actually criticize you a lot. And they're going to try to, they're going to prove the point of the class by trying to cancel you. But <laughs> we must, it's not optional. We have to stand there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great stuff. I think it also ties in pretty closely, Brian, to the, the main subject for this mm -hmm. show, which is how Christians should think about relocation. And, you know, when you read a lot of the conservative Politico type articles, you know, they're mentioning things like leftist states, which is certainly a factor here. But what I, I want to say right out of the gate, I think is true. The reason so many Christians are thinking about relocation is not simply because they live in a blue state. It's because yeah. they live in a blue state and their church is spineless yes. and they don't have a community that is supporting them on these things and that is offering pushback. I think if you had more people, right, like even think about some of the people at John MacArthur's church, I would wager those aren't the people leaving California. Mm -hmm. The people who want to leave California are the ones whose pastors, and I've heard these stories, countless stories, pastors are like, well, you know what? Critical race theory really is a helpful analytical tool. Um, I heard that from J.D. Greer, so it must be true. And We voted. I think that is a huge factor here, right, is, is the weakness and the softness of the church is causing the desire. Like, we need to be with people who are going to fight because this is a yeah. fight. That's, that is absolutely nail on the head, I think. That cuts right to the heart of the issue here. And actually the heart of the either misunderstanding or willful misrepresentation of people saying that you're just being an escapist religious conservative utopianist, whatever that word would be. If you think about moving from your place 
to go and join a robustly fruitful Christian community in a different place. Because what they see is they see the driving force, and, or at least they characterize the driving force often in the conversation as po- political. They, they, even in the way they're characterizing it as th- leaving leftist states to go to conservative states for the sake of taxes and whatnot. It's like, th- that's fruit way out on the end of the branch. That is not why Christians are, yeah. nobody that I've talked to, and I've talked to many people about relocating, people every week. I have an, I have an email this morning that I, that I need to answer uh, of someone saying, hey, we're, we're considering moving from California to your community and joining your church. Uh, can, can we talk about that? Not a week goes by that, that I'm not talking to someone about this, and none of them, none of them have said, yeah, we're just really looking for a, you know, a, a, a Republican governor, you know, <laughs> no, yeah. it's in, and what, where no. I think the misunderstanding is happening and, and, and I'd like to, your opinion on this, if, if you think this is accurate. Yeah. I think some of the misunderstanding is that Christians who tend to think I'm going to relocate to a flourishing Christian community that is actually living out their faith, engaging culture in a lot of the ways we're talking about standing firm on these battlegrounds of the day and talking about them bluntly, boldly, and Christianly. They, they can be misunderstood as being just political animals by outsiders because they hear yeah. any talk of that vein as political talk. You're like, no, 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 this is not political talk. We're not talking about if we could just get enough people, then we could flip the Supreme Court or whatever. And, you know, we could just get a republic. We could get Trump back. We could. No, that's not what they're thinking. Those issues happen to be these hot button political issues happen to be pretty uh, reliable sorters of what kind of person you're dealing with religiously. If, if, if somebody is like, yeah, I'm pretty, you know, pro, pro higher taxes for the rich and pro, you know, I'm okay with gay marriage. I personally disagree with it, but, I, but they should be able to do whatever they want. And, you know, you've just told me the nature of your worship. Yeah. And it's being misunderstood by opponents as being politically driven. And I just don't think that's the case. Yeah, I think some of it, Brian, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's misunderstood, but I think it's also, and I want to point specifically to, to Big Eva, you know, the Big Eva leaders. I think there's also a willful intention of mischaracterizing for the sake of bashing, right? It's a bit of a yeah. straw man strategy. And, and the reason I say this is because a couple articles, one we'll reference in this show is the, the Gospel Coalition article, um, which was titled, Should Christians Relocate to Conservative Areas? Again, look at the language. It's about conservative, liberal, left, right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what they're, and, and as we'll unpack this, I think there's a lot of lying actually going on in the article. Um, but it's really a shot at conservatives, right? It's a shot mm-hmm. at conservatives yeah. who, who, you know, we would call them conservatives, but you're, you're right. The reality is they're Christians and yeah. they're faithful. And most of faithful Christianity does not at all align with the left politically. Um, yeah. That's just truth. But the other one I would point to is like John Piper's article this past week, um, really slamming people for, for, you know, refusing the vaccine. I, you know, his whole argument is I have freedom in Christ to get the vaccine. That is the dumbest, most shallow, pietistic drivel that I've read in a long time. But I look at what John Piper's, who is his audience in that article? He even says so. His art, his article is aimed at conservative Christians, mm-hmm. right? He, these guys are basically, they want to take anybody on the center right conservatively, and they want to pull them middle left. That's like mm-hmm. their whole goal. 
Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of this is, it's either a mischaracterization or it's a misunderstanding. And I think a lot of it, again, is just to slam people and make you feel bad. The irony in all of this, though, think about it. Like, if you're the kind of Christian who is so convicted on principle that you're going to move states, yeah, and you're going to do it because you want to worship with the people of God who are standing mm-hmm. firm in the day of adversity, yeah. do you really think that they're going to be swayed by a gospel coalition article that's basically trying to shame them? Right? I would say that the probability is low. The probability is very low. Yeah. It probably would have the opposite effect. <laughs> They're like, TGC doesn't want me to move. Honey, pack the U-Haul. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving tonight. We're leaving. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think what's yeah. discouraged a lot of people, or at least caused, caused alarm, maybe is a better term for it, mm-hmm. is you find all these cultural issues where the Gospel Coalition and the leadership of Big Eva is actually trying to push you in the direction. Like in the article, they're actually talking about, you know, God could actually use you in like a public school that is completely pagan. And these are the kind of arguments that have got our butts kicked as Christians for the last 30 years. And I think, I think a lot of people are tired of it. Yeah. I think that's why the SBC yeah. is like in full implosion mode. I think that's why the um, Together for the Gospel is no more. I think it's why Justin Taylor's on Twitter bashing faithful pastors who are asking good questions. Why? Yeah. Is it because you embrace yeah. CRT? You know? Yeah. And they won't answer. They'll just call you an unrepentant liar. I think that, that shows you're on, the, you're on the mark. Yeah. There was a, there was a quote in the article that he, he said, he's given in this series of contrasts where he's, he's giving like for things that, this is supposedly, in the article on relocation, right? Yeah, on relocation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, um, you know, things that supposedly people who are relocating for these reasons he's identifying would say as justifications. Yeah. One of them was like, why would I let my kids grow up here? You know, I, okay, I'm here in LA. Why would I let my kids grow up here? I'm going to move. Okay. And he says better would be to say, what intentional adjustments can I make in the way I disciple my kids? Yeah. What other Christian parents yeah. will link arms with me in this effort? And I would say, what if the intentional adjustment I make in the way I disciple my kids is geographical? <laughs> you know, no, that a, one doesn't count. What if, I, what, what if I move? That would be one. But the other thing is, I would take that kind of talk far more seriously from these sorts of teachers if they would then say something like, yes, if you're going to stay in this rampantly, ascendantly pagan culture or city, for the sake of the gospel, which we need Christians to do, we do need Christians to do that, and lots of Christians are intentionally doing that, then do the hard thing, build the robust community of saints there in that place that is going to poke the idols in the eye, that is going to do the types of things that will live in high defiance of the culture surrounding you. And one of the first things you need to do if you're gonna, if, while we're talking about children is you need to get your children out of the public school. And you're almost certainly sinning if your children are in a public school in L.A. County as a Christian. And, yeah. and I'll say that with no, you're almost certainly sinning. Yeah. But they will never say that. They will talk about your children being missionaries and salt and light in the public school system and how there are good intentioned school teachers out there. And you're like, no, 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 no. You're sending your children for more than 30 hours a week to be discipled by demons. Sure, if you're going to stay, stay, and, and, but do it Christianly. But they never do that. 
they, they talk about intentional adjustments and they talk about, you know, okay, intentional adjustments. Intentional adjustments are worthless if you're not going to do the <laughs> fundamentally obvious things yeah. to protect the most basic duties that you have as a father, as a Christian father, Christian mother. So, so that to me just undercuts the whole argument when, when they're like, yeah, you can faithfully live in Babylon. I'm like, yeah, we all do. That's, it's called America. America. That's where we're living today. We're all in Babylon. You think some conservative state is like a magical utopia of Christendom today? Absolutely not. Totally. No. Garbage. No. Even the best one isn't. Even the best one. Even the best one is not that. And nobody is laboring under the delusion that it is. But if you're going to, if you're going to characterize one dimensionally, and I object to this on the surface of it, if you're going to characterize the Christian life as one holy of exile, and we're just going to talk about the language of exile and faithful presence in exile, then you'd better be doing the types of things that those exiles did, like refusing to eat the king's food, risking their life over dietary issues of the law, Daniel did. I mean, that it's just like, that's such a small thing that compared to yeah. some of the things that we're swallowing camels compared to that. You know, I, I'm becoming incoherent in my rage. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, Brian. And one of the other things that I thought about in reading the article about whether Christians should relocate, there's a lot of pietism, but one of the pietistic things that continues to be, it's like the drum they beat, is this underlying principle that Christians are better off when they're losing the cultural ground game. Yeah. Right? It's like, you know, we're made to be losers forever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen articles in the past, actually, from TGC, where it's like, you know, how to be a, how to be a Christian loser. Like God loves the loser. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's missed is like, okay, there is this time. I think you might've even mentioned this in the Matthew series. So it's maybe this is a straight ripoff, <laughs> but there's this time where Jesus humbles himself and he's killed and he's crucified mm -hmm. and he's taking the beating and he's fulfilling what Adam was supposed to do. But it is not as though to say that the expectation for Christianity is to always be in that condition. Mm -hmm. Right. The, the whole point is that now Jesus is on his throne, he's reigning, he's ruling, and we ought to be taking dominion of the whole earth, not sitting on our hands going, wow, this is really fortunate. I, I mean, you saw one of the articles, Brian, and it was like, I can't remember if it was TGC or not, but it was like, actually, everybody's complaining about the gulags and about breadlines, but breadlines are a great way to witness to gospel community. And it's like, oh my gosh. You could evangelize in a I mean, breadline. This is satanic. Like, you could. You could evangelize in a breadline, but do you love your neighbor if you willfully go along while the government creates them? Probably not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably not. Probably you, not. You're probably, it, it, the, the reality is Christians always, on some level, you can always characterize Christian victory as winning through dying, through death, burial, and resurrection. But if you, if you mischaracterize that into this kind of like loser theology, you've missed the point of what that means. The point of what it means to, yeah. to conquer through death, burial, and resurrection is actually that we ought to be cultivating strong, lordly, masculine Christian men who understand that the essence of godly masculinity is the deploying and giving away of their strength in service of the good, of the good, the true, and the beautiful, of the people under their care, right. and that godly femininity for, for, the, for the Christian women uh, in this company of saints— 
that the, the, the essence of Christian femininity is giving away their strength in a feminine way in service of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Like, for example, childbirth is a great example of giving away your strength, pouring out your life for the service of life. What they tend to make that into, though, is that the men aren't actually allowed to be strong in the first place at all. They're not allowed to have strength to give away. They're supposed to just, You're just embrace that you are weak. And it's like, no, Paul said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. His point was that his strength fundamentally wasn't in Paul's ability yeah. to go and, you know, convince people by the sheer nature of his arguments or, you know, fight people to the ground and somehow make them Christians in, in like some, some sort of wrestling scenario. No, he was weak. He was one guy against an empire and against an entire pantheon of gods. But in that, Paul knew he was strong because he served the Lord Jesus. And so he went into the Areopagus. He went into the cultural centers and he poked the idols in both eyes. And that's what it looked like to be weak in the way Paul was talking about. So I think, I think there's a lot of yeah. muddled thinking on, the, on these fronts. Don't you think, Brian, I know you've uh, talked about this recently. Um, you know, on one hand, we have the prosperity gospel, mm-hmm. which is false. But on the other hand, we have the, the yeah. poverty gospel. I would sort of equate this yeah. to that, where it's like mm-hmm. the weakness gospel, the weak and trampled yep. gospel. Um, it's just another distortion, though, right? Yeah, that's absolutely the case where we have. And it's, it's, it's just as big of an issue, if not a bigger issue, in, in many of the streams and circles that, that I think are closer to what we would run in. Would, we'd be more tempted by this um, poverty theology that would basically um, deny the, the, the pattern that God has built into the world on the one hand, that God blesses obedience and faithfulness, and he curses disobedience and faithlessness. That is true. That is true in the Old Testament. That is true in the New Testament. God is just, a, because he tells the truth, he blesses faithfulness and obedience, he curses disobedience. This is not salvation by works. This is not works righteousness at all. Because why? Any good work produced in the Christian life is produced because we are connected to the vine. John 15 makes it very clear. Apart from the Lord Jesus, you will do nothing, nothing of value whatsoever. But what does he say? But in me, you will bear much fruit. How does Jesus characterize the kingdom in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he says, his people apparently are going to be the kind of people who are marked by good works in the sense that they become a city on a hill, this lit up city on a hill, shining with good works. And, and Jesus says the result will be that people will see their good works and glorify the Father in heaven. <laughs> Where did that all come from? From the Lord. From, he works in us to will and to work. Yeah. But if we were just to say, good works, that sounds really strong. Christians aren't strong. Christians are bad. Is Jesus, is Jesus weak? Is the spirit impotent? Do we not have new hearts? I, I, how many verses in the Bible are we going to cross out before we're done? It's like yeah. we were made to, in our weakness, be strong. And that means abandoning reliance on ourselves. works done apart from the vine, so that we can depend on our vital connection to the vine and bear much fruit, which... Fruit is good work. Fruit is faithfulness. Fruit is, you know, it's, it's things that people will actually be able to see, point at, and, and identify as, as good. So, again, I think muddled 
thinking on the ground about the nature of what the Bible means when it says weakness, the nature of what it means when it says exile, the na- you know, all of these misunderstandings about the fundamental, um, the fundamental effects of the gospel as it permeates an individual family, a church, a community. Yeah, I think that's really huge. Uh, Brian, it leads me to another question. So let's, let's kind of put a hypothetical. You've got a person, I know I've had this, I know you've had it, um, but you have somebody who comes to you and says, you know, I live in a, a, a state, um, you know, we're really struggling where we are, um, particularly on this issue of like, we don't have a church, mm-hmm. right? And I want, I want to ask you a question, but, but I want to lay out something that Michael Foster yeah. said in, in conjunction with this. Um, he said it in It's Good to Be a Man. I've also seen it in other places on his, his Twitter account mm-hmm. and elsewhere. But really, he pointed to three things. He said, okay, in that situation, you don't have a church, right? He said, you, you kind of have three options. Number one, you can work for reform where you are. So that's one viable option. He said, number two, you can go to another church locally. Or number three, you can move to a different area and find a different church. So I, I want to start yeah. there as, as you're counseling someone. I've often said, hey, if you can work for reform, that's great. But there's a lot of problems and pitfalls with that. And, and one of them is that a lot of people aren't in a position where they can actually work for reform. So I'm curious your take on this. How likely is that in today's climate where somebody's going to actually be able to work for change and reform where they are? Yeah. You know, the beauty of that option is that it's the first thing you, you try no matter what. Yeah. And then you see how much influence you have by what happens. Yeah. And, and I don't mean becoming a, a, a rock in the shoe of your pastor, you know, right away and, and starting secret meetings to try and divide the church. I don't mean that at all. But I do mean you start with reform by going to the doctrine guarding authorities of the church and saying, um, I, I think that we're missing something here. I think that maybe the way that the teaching of the church and the leadership of the church is characterizing X, Y, or Z issue and how we should relate to it culturally is misguided and is going to bear bad fruit. I think that we need to take a stand here. We need to think through issues like education. We need to think through issues like sexuality, uh, race, all of these things. As you go to your pastor or the elder team or whoever you know, is you, you're going to go to first and start to bring these things up, in a respectful, um, prepared, non-screechy way, as a, basically as a Christian, you know, you're going to find out, can, do you have the ability to reform this church? Because what you shouldn't be doing is that secret meeting, trying to divide up the church, starting rumor mongering against the elders. Oh, they're, oh, they're, they're all these, you know, they're just, they're faithless, they're whatever, you know. Don't bring a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Go and do the biblical process. And what you'll discover then is you'll, you'll figure out where you stand, if that makes sense. I think you'll, you'll figure out, yeah. like, can I, do I have the juice? Am I, a, am I an elder on the team? Am I a deacon? Do I, have I been here serving, am I a pillar family in this church? Or am I one guy among 700 people and... You know, they're pretty set and they're, they're not, I'm not going to really be able to move this ship. My hand's not on the wheel. And then I can start working through the flow chart of my other options. But, you know, I think that the nice thing about that first attempt is that it's really, it answers its own question as you attempt. It answers the question as you make the attempt. Yeah, I think that's really good. And, and it's interesting too. I've heard some people, had some people say to me, you know, part of it is authority. You know, do you have the authority in the situation? Are you an elder or something like that? 
Um, I've also found though, even if you are, like I've talked to a lot of guys where it's like, hey, we had three elders. We went to the pastor. We're like, hey, we need to open our church. And the guy was like, nope, not doing it. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, even though they're elders, um, you know, their only recourse was, hey, we, we need to do something else. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think it's really good to gauge like what is the response when yeah. you bring these things up. Um, the other main consideration here, Brian, um, so that's kind of outward looking. If you're a man, you're the father in your house, you're looking to, to address issues with the church. But the other thing is that, that I've talked to a lot of guys about is really like guarding their wife's heart, mm-hmm. leading the family well. Yeah. Um, this can be a very, you know, wives tend to gravitate on the spectrum towards security. Mm-hmm. Um, this can be a really challenging so what would you say to, to fathers and husbands in terms of leading their family in this process? Yeah. Husbands and fathers need to make sure that they're cultivating a, a, a joyful gravitas in their home when, when they're leading through difficult things, particularly. They can't be, you shouldn't become chicken little and you shouldn't become mm. enraged and you shouldn't model talking poorly of the, the people in authority over you. Um, even if that, that authority has failed, and they're not doing a good job, and you're actively attempting to either reform, figure out where you stand, or move on, you shouldn't be modeling bitterness and, and this antithetical to the gospel spirit in your home. You want to have a joyful clarity where people know where they stand, where you're not, you're not acting like you know, the church doesn't meet for six months because of a, a virus with a 99.98% survival rate or whatever it is. You know. <laughs> You're not going to just act like that doesn't exist. You're going to lead your family through it. You're going to talk to them. This is what dad is doing um, to address this situation. Here's why I think that this is a mistake. We're addressing it with the leadership. We're going to respect them. You're modeling how to deal with difficult situations, how to deal with uh, improperly used authority over you. You're not going to all of a sudden become a fever dream libertarian that acts like there is no hierarchy in the world and you're ba- it's just basically God and then you, and that's it. Am I being detained, Brian? <laughs> Am I being detained? Yeah. You know, you're going to, you're going to model godly hierarchy, even as you relate Man, to yeah. unjust authority, you're going to help your wife. You know, often yeah. what this looks like, it's going to be helping correct, um, in your home gossip or, um, and I'm, I know a lot of people are like, man, he's sounding really like I need to be patient and gentle. I thought we were talking about like burning stuff down. Well, yeah, if you want to burn stuff down yeah. the right way, do it like a Christian. You don't want to burn your family right. down. Do it like no. a Christian. Do it to where yeah. you walk away with a clean conscience. And you can say, Lord, I am not a reviler. I did not revile those shepherds, even though I wanted to. I didn't. I spoke confidently humbly, courageously, truthfully. And, you know, I protected my people. I exercised my authority righteously, even as they exercise their authority unrighteously. Um, So that's a huge ditch. You don't want to just, on the one hand, you need to take it seriously and and move as quickly as possible to get your family to a healthy community. Your family needs a healthy community they're going to become like the people you're around. Your children are going to become like the children around. They're... And so if, if fundamentally you look around in your church and you say, everybody here, if my children grew up to be like them, I would be, I would weep. I'd be, you know, it'd be a failure. Mm. Well, then you need to move, but do so Christianly. 
I think those are the two poles that I'm, yeah. that I'm, that I'm trying to, you know, two ditches that we need to avoid in this it's passivity or um, unrighteous anger, unrighteous leadership, unrighteous overthrow of authority. Um, those are both ditches you just don't want to end up in for the health of your family, your own spiritual health. Yeah, I think that's awesome, Brian. I, you talked about the joyful gravitas uh, in your home. Uh, one of the things that I've found is when you're when when I as a man as a father I'm, I'm wrestling with these difficult situations. There can be um, sinful anxiety. There can be levels of stress that are just you know pretty enormous sometimes. And one of the things that I've noticed in myself, and I've had to repent to my family of, is like just where. As a father, like your presence is like the thermostat in the house, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if if you're like dour and like, you know, you sit down, everything's sullen, and you know, you just oh man, things are so weighty. I know, especially for me, you mentioned uh, modeling bitterness, complaining, mm. frustration, yeah. modeling those things to your family. Man, it bleeds into everybody else, and it can be so toxic. One of the things I would just encourage people: I've done this; it's really helped me. Um, there's a pastor in Ogden, Utah, who who does psalm singing. Brian, do you know him? I, you know, I've heard that he's in the circle. I keep yeah. hearing he's a cult leader, so I haven't talked to him. <laughs> he's a cult. Really, I've that that may him. actually be true. Uh, but no, <laughs> in all seriousness, it's really helped me to listen to to the psalms sung. Um, one of the things you notice as you're singing the psalms, um, as I read through them on a daily basis, I get to Psalm, you know. 106, and I'm like, okay, Lord, I am bitter and dour, and things are heavy. Yeah. And I look at verse one, and he says, rejoice in the Lord for his steadfast love. And you're like, okay, no, no, I don't. That's not how I feel right now. But yeah. we need that. And I think yes. just being able to model uh, to your kids and to your family, yeah, there's weighty decisions, but you know what? We are going to be joyful. We're going to give thanks. We're going to find a you know, a, an edifying activity for the evening to do. We're going to throw football yeah. in the yard and we're going to have joy while we do it. Yep. Man, it's amazing. Again, just fathers, you set the tone here. Um, and, yes. and the absolute worst thing you can do for your wife and for your family is be bitter and dour. Yeah, we're not going to spend every evening talking, listening to a new podcast about the vaccine and listening yeah. to a new, you know, <laughs> not listen to the podcast, learn the stuff, do your homework. But man, if you let that stuff dominate, if all of a sudden the only thing you talk or think about is critical race theory, the vaccine and Joe Biden, mm. it's like <laughs> you are imb- you are off, man. You are off. The, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. <laughs> like you are the, the father is your father. He gives good gifts. You have many of them surrounding you, no matter what your situation is. Thank the Lord for them. Pray for a thankful heart. And yes, as you do that. Make sure that you're leading and shepherding to green pastures in whatever spheres of authority you have and whatever duties you have as a father, a husband, a wife, a mother, whatever it is. But make sure that you're doing it where the, the major key note is, is, the, is the, the joy of the Lord, is the, our, our humble confidence in the Lord. And yeah, man, the Psalms are just, getting the Psalms down in, in my bones those last couple of years has been one of the best possible things we could have done because you just, you start getting the language of how to deal with hardships and still rejoice. Fret not thyself at evil men who seem to prosper in their sin. You know, they're, they may look strong for a time, but the Psalms remind us relentlessly. They are dust that they're chaff that the wind drives away. 
in, yeah. in, in the congregation of the righteous, they will not stand. They won't. They're going to blow away. The, the, the dispensationalists have it exactly wrong. The saints aren't going to be removed. The wicked are going to be removed. We're going to stand and shine mm-hmm. like the sun in, in our father's kingdom. You know, so the Psalms will just, they will help you with this because they'll give you the seriousness to deal with enemies. You won't be like a flippant joy. It's actually just kind of a fake sugary whatever. Yeah. That's not joy. That you, You'll be able to have a biblical depth to your anathematizing, to your damning, and to your, your, your rejoicing. Uh, and that's just, that's a gift that you can't get anywhere else, I think. Yeah, that's really huge. Uh, final thing I want to ask you, Brian, for families, you know, thinking about moving, particularly in the situation where a spouse, and I'm thinking mainly of a wife, mm-hmm. like a wife is like, maybe, you know, good. I've, I, you know, I've known of situations like this, you know, godly woman kind of having a Lot's wife moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your family's here, you're comfortable yep. in your, your lifestyle, all those things. How would you encourage husbands in that type of situation? Like, how do you lead your wife well when she's anxious? She doesn't want to move. She's comfortable with her life and, and maybe reticent to, to follow your lead somewhere else. How, how would you counsel in that situation? Yeah, and a lot of what we've been talking about is going to be an important bedrock, so I won't repeat all of that. But you need to definitely have that joyful, thankful gravitas so that your wife isn't worried that you're just jumping on a bandwagon or just you know, following some celebrity or, you know, just whatever it is. So you can dispel some of those obvious um, red flags. You're cultivating a seriousness of joy. Um, You need to have those lines of communication with your wife. Be completely open. Um, You need to model self-control in how you're talking to her so that you're um, you're, you're not losing it and treating her like an enemy. You're leading her even when she disagrees with you. You're taking the the responsibility for the family in that way. Um, I think you can help your wife by um, aiming to see see if there are some relationships that you could begin to cultivate or help her cultivate uh, in the area that you're thinking about moving. Maybe at, reach out and ask: Is there some? Is there a family we could start talking to? Could we make some connections there? Um, that that sort of thing can really help when it's it becomes less of a this big blank question mark in your mind of like, well, we're moving to this unknown other place. Like, no, we're moving to, to go hang, be with the Garrett's or be with, you know, whoever else it is in this community that we know. Um, But at the end of the day, the husband needs to be leading not around the emotions of his wife, but he needs to be leading around the big questions of what is our household going to look like over the long haul? Where are we going to root down? We're not chasing utopia. We're looking for a robust community of the saints where we can put roots down, fruit up, and we can, for the long haul, raise our kids here in a place where we think they'll want to stay and they'll want to pour into the community and and be there for the long haul. And so he needs to be answering those questions and helping lead around those big, big issues and, um, you know, not not just about some trivial thing or some small, you know, or, or not leading around the wrong sorts of issues, not just negative, like, hey, we yeah. escape this, escape this, escape this. It's like, no, what are we for? What are we going to build? What do we want our children to yeah. become? Because glory motivate, we were made to be motivated by glory. So, you know, cast a glorious vision 
for your family that's biblically rooted, realistic, and then uh, lead them into that. And it's going to be hard. Um, you might you might have disagreement, but uh, even that you've got to weather with with that joyful gravitas. I think. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the other challenges, Brian. That's some really good 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 stuff and great points. One of the challenges, if you're in one of these states or you're in one of these communities where there's not a great church the chances of you and your wife being pretty underserved and malnourished scripturally, uh, fellowship-wise, is pretty high. So one of the things that I've found has been helpful uh, with counseling guys, it's been helpful for myself and my family, is just making sure that you have a regular intake of solid preaching. Uh, Again, that the the people in your family are following their reading plans, uh, scripture reading, that we're just encouraging in that, not using it as a beat stick, but just encouraging yeah. like, Hey, let's go to the Lord. Like God, mm-hmm. um, I was telling my family the other day, uh, as I was reading in Kings, it's something that I'd read and just brought into family worship. But, um, here is Israel and they're in the middle of the desert and they're about to die. Cause there's no water. And, um, I think it's Elisha. He comes and he says, well, the Lord is going to fill the desert with pools. But then he says, he goes, this is a light thing for the Lord. Like, this is easy. Mm-hmm. And so just sort of having that attitude as a father, like, mm-hmm. this is easy for the Lord. Do you think this is hard for God? He made the mountains. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know it feels like your world is like coming unglued and there's these huge yeah. weighty mind. God made everything and he made yeah. you and he numbers the hairs on your head. This is light for him. This is easy lifting. Mm-hmm. And so just, just projecting that, making sure there's good intake um, one of the blessings, as you mentioned, is being able to connect with people um, in local areas, get to know them. Yeah. Relationships really are a huge thing. If you have those in place to somewhere where you're going, um, it really just softens the blow of a, you know, moves can be lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That whole starting over can be really scary. Yeah. Um, so if you can help, you know, relationships help soften that. Um, Brian, I, I want to ask you something as well. We, we haven't quite addressed this. But I think it's important to step back and do, and that's just to say, what are the priorities? Like if you rank them, like say one to five, mm-hmm. what priorities should pe- people be thinking of? And, and the reason I ask this is because I grew up in an era when it was like, well, your number one priority is your job mm-hmm. and yeah. you figure out what job you can make a lot of money at. And then you, mm-hmm. I don't know, everywhere, there's a yeah. church everywhere. Well, I think people mm-hmm. are realizing right now, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not a church under every rock. No. Um, and we actually have to be very intentional about what kinds of churches we're seeking out. Yeah. So again, just put that all together. What, how do you rank priority here? Yeah, when you're thinking through uh, assessing a place, and I'm going to start with the assumption that you should first be assessing whether or not your family can spiritually flourish in a place, not whether or not you can pay the bills there. Because you can pay the bills in lots of places, but you can't necessarily spiritually flourish in every place if you are not authorized, called, and sent to plant a church. That's going to be different if you're right. authorized, called, and sent to plant a church. That's going to change the conversation. But for the vast majority of people who are not authorized, called, or sent, first of all, don't try. Don't just randomly start a church by yourself, okay? I see lots of people doing that or talking about that. We have people move in and out of Utah that do that all the time because Utah is like a mission field. And so there's 2% Christians. And they're like, we need more churches there. I will uh, send myself and just go plant a church. And it lasts a year or two and then it blows up, you know, or, or, or worse, it succeeds in, in, the, in the wrong way. Um, 
But yeah. I'm going to assume that your first priority is the spiritual health of your family. And are, is this community a place we can flourish? The first thing I'm looking at in assessing a church is going to be um, the fruit that I'm seeing. So it's easy to put things on a doctrinal statement. Um, it's easy to signal in one direction. It's easy to jump on a bandwagon and say whatever theological flavor is popular these days, you know, I'm a theonomic reformed Baptist, you know, fill in the, fill in the blank. And then, and then people are like, Oh, that's cool. All my favorite podcasts are that I'm that church must be awesome. Easy to write stuff on paper. Fruit proves out though. So is the pastor and the elders, are they biblically qualified from the eye test? Are there, what are, yeah, what are their kids like? Yeah. What's their family like? Are they, wife, are they joyful, Christian, likes the church, kids, are they walking with the Lord? You know, especially if there's grown children, um, fruit in the ministry, like are there new, are there people being converted and baptized in the church from outside of the church? Are the, are the people keeping their kids? Are they, are the kids remaining, is there multiple generations represented depending on how old the church is, if that's realistic to expect? Um, fruit is going to be huge. The second thing is is that everything that that I do want on paper, I want to be there. Are they uh, in their their doctrinal statement? Are they uh, robustly in in Are they robustly Christian in everything from the primaries on out? Like, are they robustly Christian? Obviously, in the core, you're you're Orthodox or not sorts of things. But going on out, like, are they? you know, a robustly reformed community? Are they uh, taking biblical stands on important secondary issues when it comes to gay stuff, men and women, children? Christian education is going to be something there that I'm going to look into. Do they do they care about Christian education? How are the people educating their kids in the church? Um, that's going to be huge. And then in in that, you're just going to listen to a lot of stuff, right? Like that they are putting out. Are you listening to their sermons? Uh, you know, a good number of them, all of the media, whatever media stuff they're putting out, I'm going to listen to a lot of that. And um, what would you add to that? that? That's the beginnings. Yeah, I think it's really good. It, it, it's kind of a dovetail, mm-hmm. I think. I, I, so I was listening to, um, I think it was Aaron Wren on The Masculinists, and I have a few of these things written down. But he, he said, like, how, what should you consider moving? Um, so he's got five things here. So number one, he says, do I have an organic connection there? Um, I think that's helpful. Like he, he mentioned in there that um, for whatever reason, like when you're certain years, it's like eight to 15 or something. When you live in an area, you're from a region, whatever, that becomes what you think of as like home. Um, that can be good. I think it can be good to feel like you're from a place. Um, and if you can find a church and a job at that sphere, then great. Sometimes you can't. But a good kind of just simple question to ask, um, for, for me particularly, you know, we've talked about this. I was born and raised in the West, uh, Western United States. So that really feels like home. And I've lived other places. And when I live there, it's like, yeah, this is fine. But I'm also not from here. You just yeah. don't feel like you're from there. So that, that can be a factor. Absolutely. Uh, number two, he, he says, what are my economic prospects? Um, you know, can you get a job mm-hmm. there? Now, this one I've often struggled with because 
again, it, it's a question that you need to ask. Obviously, you know, you need to be gainfully employed. Um, but some people I think, and I've wrestled with this in the past, like, but I, yeah, I could go get a job at McDonald's there, but can I find a job that I would be, you know, relatively happy at using my skill set, um, that sort of thing. And I think sometimes what I've typically seen is people are, can be a little too picky on the job front. Sure. Like, is my dream job in that yeah. city? Well, then I don't want to go there. Um, yeah. And, and ranking it too high priority wise. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You get, you're just like, uh, and that's making the, the fallacy the, uh, again of putting the first priority into the second or third place. Instead of putting what should be first, the spiritual community, you're putting something else in that first place, and then you're just reverse engineering from there. And there's a sense in which you can start in that. Like if you say, I have expertise in this field, I've built a career in this field, it's a good field, I want to stay in it. Here are the six places in America where there's, this work exists. Now I'm going to go find a good church. Yeah. And, and if there's nothing good in any of them, then I'm going to figure something else out. I'm not just going to randomly move and join a place that I'm a church that I can't, you know, tell my family, obey these elders, be like these people, that, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's big. Um, the third one, Aaron mentions, uh, can I afford to live there? Mm-hmm. So this has been um, interesting. You, you mentioned this earlier. I think I think outside of the coasts and maybe like Chicago, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a non-issue if you're kind of in the middle of most of America. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I live in the West. Um, they've had charts, you know, where like, what's the average income you need to make to live here? Where does it rank scale-wise? Yeah. So where we live is pretty darn expensive mm-hmm. uh, compared to like the South. Yeah. Um, but the question is, can you make it there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most places, I think you, you probably could afford to live there. Now, certain places I think of like San Francisco, mm-hmm. LA, yeah. New York, y- you really can't, especially if you value like your wife staying home, Oh yeah, um, <laughs> raising the children. There's like a number of reasons you wouldn't want to live in those cities. Yeah. You'd have to make a quarter million a year in some of those places to live in a lower middle class way. Right. So I think, I think that's a factor. Um, I, I want to ask you about this because I know um, I've talked to a lot of people. Um, people ask me, especially if they're from California, people ask me, you know, where should I go? I, I always recommend, hey, well, you should at least talk to Brian and Dan at, at, at Refuge in Ogden. Now, it's interesting. If they're in California, Ogden looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're like yeah. east of there. Ogden looks really expensive. So, so for people in maybe a similar situation, how would you, I guess, how would you encourage people to think about that issue? Ogden is expensive. Uh, obviously, God has a church there. You guys are, you know, thriving. God's blessing that work. Um, how, how should somebody think about that? Yeah, I mean, there's, God cares about math. God invented math. God gave you duties that require you to be able to do math. So you can't just flippantly say, Oh, whatever. It doesn't matter. I make $18,000 a year and I'm probably going to only be qualified to work at McDonald's, but I'm going to move to a place, you know, in Ogden has higher housing costs. They've been going up for real reasons like economic growth, limited land between the Salt Lake and the mountains. So within the the realm of being close to the the economic hubs, at least. Um, So I would tell people, do the math, 
figure it out. If you don't make enough, figure out how you can make more. Like uh, there's your money, there's other money. Figure out how to get some of that second category to be the first category. And that sounds flippant, but it's like if you're a man who believes the word of God, trusts the Lord, puts your hand to the plow, works heartily as for the Lord, not for men, does an inventory of your own skills, improves yourself, figures out how to just make most men will given a year or two, be able to figure out how to make more money. It's just, I have that confidence. I tell young guys that all the time in the church. They're like, well, I need, you know, I don't make that much money. I'm like, you will. You believe the Lord, not a prosperity God. I'm not saying you're gonna get wealthy tomorrow, but like, I look at you. I know you, you read the Proverbs, you, you work hard, you're reasonably intelligent. Like, just go for it. Pick a thing, go for it. Be wise, be cunning, be, be holy. Like, go and, and go for it. And, and, the other thing, I made $27,000 a year until like not that long ago. We had multiple kids living in Ogden. We lived in a 700 square foot condo uh, that <laughs> I literally, Eric, I built a bunk bed in our living room that my wife and I <laughs> slept on. And I put the couch under the bunk bed in the living room. And and that was what we did. Like, and do I recommend that? Not necessarily, but, <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and, my wife came home from work when our first kid was born um, for the last time, like ever. And, and we still made 27, like that was when I made $27,000 a year. It wasn't utopia, yeah. you know, you can figure it out. It's okay to not make a lot of money and to be early in your career and figuring this stuff out. But I do, man, I just, I trust so much that the Lord is going to provide for his people that I almost like air towards the side of, um, like not, I'd not only think that the Lord's people are going to make it through these economic hardships and inflationary scenarios and craziness in the market. I think Christians are going to just crush it. I, I absolutely do. I think, especially Christians who are having this conversation they're like, should I move to a based Christian community for the spiritual health of my generations? I'm like, they're going to make it. Chad saying yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're going to be that guy. They're going to be fine. Like I'm, I'm not, yeah. I'm not worried about that guy, you know, I, I, and he may not know exactly what he's going to do right now, but, but I just say, quit thinking about it and figure it out. Go figure it out. Go, go. You can do it. Men have not been told nearly enough. You can do it. And I think, you know, I think about this sentence that Doug Wilson says all the time about his place in Idaho. And he's like, you know, when the first settlers came to Idaho, there was a lot of work and no jobs. <laughs> like, that's so good. They showed up and they did work <laughs> and, and then they turned it into jobs. Like, yeah. They made the jobs. So, you know, a lot of people in our church facing possible firing for vaccine mandate issues and things like that in our area. A lot of them for the past year looking ahead at this stuff coming, they've been doing a lot of work to make jobs where there aren't jobs. And I'm not worried about even one of them. Even though there may be hardship and we may as a community have to come alongside and help and do some things. But long term, I'm not worried about one of them not eating or not having a place to live because they have a church and we love them and because they're men of God. And they they act like it, you know, so. Yeah, I think that's that's really big. And it, it, it reminded me of something, Brian, that uh, you mentioned, I think it's Matthew 5, uh, going through the Lord's Prayer. But it's a, it's a good reminder for the church as well that we don't pray, give me yeah. my daily bread. 
we pray give us yeah. our daily bread. And so uh, really when you think about that, the, the church, like we're all praying for that. We know God's going to take care of his people in that, but it's, it's, it's a community project, right? Um, and I think that's so big too. Can we, not only can I go to a church if we're going to relocate, can I go to a church uh, where my needs are going to be met and there's going to be provision, but where we're helping other people yeah. do that as well. We're helping other people get out from underneath this uh, corporate wage slavery, which I've said is, is wage slavery. I've been saying that for a long time, Wendell mm-hmm. Perry, C.R. Wiley. But now I think people are literally seeing like, they just told me if I don't get a vaccine, yeah. like that doesn't even work. And we know it doesn't work. They told me if I don't get that, I'm fired. Yeah. So, so yeah, this, this really does feel like not yeah. the best of relationships. They're saying they own my body. That's what they're saying. Yeah. I, I own yeah. your body. That's a condition of working here. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a complete yeah. master-slave relationship. Yeah. But, but then being able to help people say, how do you get out of that? Um, mm-hmm. How do you carve out some space for yourself where you can have own space, where you can operate in a way that's um, helpful? And I think, you know, my experience, Dan, with Dan, with you, with uh, being around other guys in that community, um, it really helps when you have other guys who are thinking that way too. Yeah. And so, again, it's not just, you know, doctrinally sound preaching, but uh, thinking through those issues of, am I going to be surrounded by guys who are like, I don't know, man, just get the vax and go back to work. Don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. That's yeah. a real consideration. Mm-hmm. Yep. You, you need men around you. You need women around you that are, you know, like I think of not just, the, I, we've talked a lot about the men, but I think about the women in the church too, that are ride or die wives. And they're like, yeah, babe, I trust you. Feel free to lose your job over this principle yeah. and say, you don't own my body. The Lord owns my body and I'm not going to listen to you and do this. I will lose. Mm. Yeah. Take your money. Your money perish with you, Northrop Grumman. Your money perish <laughs> with you, whoever the heck it, I'm talking, you know, not to get specific. Uh, the, <laughs> having, having wives yeah. in the community that can say, yes, I trust my husband and I trust this community that we're going to make it. We're going to be able to provide. And, you know, this is why we've been teaching people from the beginning that why do we tithe? Like, why do we tithe? Why do, why do we give a tenth off the top? Well, it's because of this. We give a tenth because the, when the tithe fails, the, the state swells and they try to take over everything. And then they actually enslave people. But as we all just live with a generous hand towards one another, then what we can do is we can do things like start a school where we can educate kids and not charge them $14,000 a year. And we can per kid. Uh, tell family, yeah, per kid. <laughs> <Oof>. <laughs> wow. Like th- there was my, uh, you know, that 27,000 is not going very far. I can only do one kid. They can't eat. They can't eat anything either. Like you just, uh, yeah, you don't d- stop eating children. Daddy doesn't make very much money. Uh, and, and people can, can say, yes, I will. Um, make this stand here and trust that um, not only, in, and I'm not talking about just permanent welfare and like the welfare of the church, but I mean, there are going to be other people in the church that come together and the Lord deploys his troops. And some of them are going to have mutually corresponding gifts and abilities, and they're going to start things and they're going to do things that end up making money. Some of them are going to make wild, wild amounts of money. I have no doubt that some of the men in this church will who are in their early 20s right now trying to figure stuff out and maybe starting their first business or something or working for someone else 
some of them are going to absolutely make wild wild amounts of money and 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 i just i don't i don't wonder whether or not that's going to i mean the lord could blow up america tomorrow we pray that he would be continue to be patient and long suffering but even in judgment like the the lord will sustain his people and uh i you know when i look out at men obeying the lord i just that gives me such a high degree of confidence because of the things i read in the bible about generous saints who obey the lord walk after him trust him don't worship money and and, and love their brother with it i mean psalm 37 man it's, it, he even says i've never seen a righteous man beg for bread yeah that's a real verse in the bible you know, it's a real verse in the Bible. And it doesn't mean that in that God won't allow suffering and tribulation and even, you know, some saints will be hungry. That's not, that's not the point. But the point is, here's a pattern that the Lord has built. Here's the kind of father he is. Go and glorify the Lord in your body. Work heartily, aim to live quiet and peaceful lives, working with your hands, trusting the Lord. And he's a father who absolutely delights to show his profligate generosity towards his people. And he, he hmm. just, he, he loves to, I mean, he loves to do that. And he loves to do it not, not because um, he wants us to worship money and chase money, but because again, like the way that these communities of people, the way that we reach and evangelize a nation or a city or a place is like, we have to be there. We have to be able to eat there. We have to be able to live there. And he's told us to do that task, so I'm going to assume that he's going to give us the things we need to do that task, generally, with his own divine provident judgment, calamity, and all of that factored in, and we trust the Lord through those things, that he's serving us even in those. But he's called us to this task, so I think we can trust him to sustain us in that task. Hmm. It's true for fathers, yeah. churches, nations, you know, it's... It's just, we, we really, I think, need to grow in our prayerful trust in the goodness of our Father as it relates to even our physical bodies and our sustenance and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that's really great. Uh, last two things, Brian, uh, that are on Aaron Wren's list. Uh, number one was, do you actually like to live there? Yeah. Um, that's pretty simple, but, uh, you know, a, another good reason to visit places mm-hmm. Um you know, to actually go visit communities, see what things are like, um, see if it's a place that you could actually, uh, you know, feel reasonably comfortable, happy, et cetera, with. Um, and and again, to experience some of the community life beforehand is kind of the only way you would know. You can't just watch somebody on Twitter and think, oh yeah, we'd be best friends. Um, you actually have to experience life together uh, a little bit. Um, and then it's interesting. Number five, I think Aaron even said sort of an afterthought. Maybe it should have been first. But he said number five, is there a solid church community? <laughs> yeah, I'd put that first. That goes number one, Aaron. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, flip that on its head and I, don't, and I like the list. <laughs> yeah. So, so some really good things to think of. Last thing I kind of want to ask you, Brian, and then we'll wrap this up. Some other valid reasons to move. Maybe people have a good church, but you're in California. And they're told, hey, to work here, to live here, there's going to be a vaccine mandate. We're going to vaccinate your kids, et cetera. Just thinking through, like, what are some other valid reasons to say we should move? Yeah. You know what? I think the first thing we need to do is just to give people the freedom to say, we're not going to start forbidding things that scripture doesn't. 
the scriptures don't forbid you to move for economic reasons. The scriptures don't forbid you from, mm. um, you know, that's a pretty big reason. I mean, the scriptures, though, they don't, if you have a good opportunity, they don't forbid for you it. from moving. There's nothing in there that, that says that. Go for it. Yeah. I mean, so sometimes it's, you can have the insecurity of pastors in places. I, I hear a lot of this talk of like, why is everybody moving to conservative states? And honestly, when I look at the bylines, a lot of them are in California. Like almost, almost all of them I can remember are in California that are saying this and complaining about it on Twitter or complaining. About, and why? It's because people are leaving their churches to move to conservative yeah. states and they're going, hey, we need to reach a lot. I'm going to assume the best and just say a lot of it's like they want to reach the place. They're seeing good families move. But you, you can't as a pastor have that insecurity of like, you know, the, oh, we can't we got to keep the people. We had a family move a couple of years ago that he was an elder, pillar family in the church. Like absolutely, humanly speaking, without this family at different points in the church's history, we wouldn't have made it. Like it was, they were that important to the life of the church. Godly, fruitful family. Huge encouragement to me personally. And I was so bummed that they were moving and they moved to Moscow. It was the funniest thing. But but not because of Christ. They actually it was a job. It just he lost the job. Had to, had to move for a job. It happened to be in Pullman, which is like five minutes from Moscow. So that was the ultimate irony. And, and there was a time when I was like, oh man, I'm so you know, like Lord, what are you doing? Why? God knew what He was doing. They're doing great. We're doing great. The Lord brought other people. We can't be clingy. Like trust the Lord. If someone moves from our church, God bless them. If they're going to go do well somewhere else, God bless them. God be with you. Someone moves here, God bless you. God be with you. Put your hand to the plow here. But pastors need to not act like popes, and they need to not act like controlling ultra-patriarchalists, like the bad kind, where they're like, everything comes through me, man. If the Lord doesn't tell me you're supposed to move, that's abusive. Like, it's not a sin to move, period. There are sinful reasons to move, sure. But why are we acting like there's some a priori, you have to justify the reason must be spiritual enough because we need Christians here in California or in Utah. Well, go kick rocks. Yeah. The Lord deploys his troops. He's, he's going to, it's not your job, man. You, you do, you be faithful. <laughs> so I think we need to kind of clear that up a little bit that some of us pastors can get off on this. I think that's really helpful because it, Ultimately, you don't you don't need some super deep spiritual reason. Like if you say, "Look, it's mm-hmm. politically, economically, and and faith mm-hmm. community a better option for our family. Um, yeah, we're in a better position to fight back against the culture. Great, mm-hmm. uh, Brian. One last thing I want to ask you is related to something that Doug Wilson said, but he said you can't fight a culture war without a culture. And mm-hmm. so what I felt like is a lot of us you're not really in a position to fight well in this moment if you don't have a strong church culture. Yeah. Um, so maybe just flush that out and, and, and we can close with that. But why is that so important that it's not just a church that has good preaching? It's not just mm-hmm. a church that uh, has a good liturgy, but it, mm-hmm. it's actually a, a church that can function as a cultural engine and a catalyst for your community and your area and your family, right? Yes, absolutely. We are not Gnostics. We are not looking for uh, disembodied spiritual truths that we simply believe between our ears. 
we are Christians. Christianity is a is a faith of the body. It's a faith of the physicality. It's a faith of the world. It's a faith of created things, including spiritual things and physical things. It's a faith that is totalizing. It encompasses every aspect of what it means to be human. To be a Christian ought to touch every aspect of who you are as a physical, emotional, spiritual, uh, embodied person in a time and a place in a community with certain skills, gifts, talents that the Lord has given you, duties, responsibilities. So when we're talking about what it even means to be a Christian at all, we have to talk about all of that. We're we're going and, and inevitably what that's going to mean and what Doug, you know, Pastor Wilson means when he talks about that is that the culture is it's Henry Van Til says it's religion externalized. It's the culture is the external display of your worship, of what you worship, what you value, what you believe to be good, true, and beautiful as it pertains to every aspect of life. And so, of course, when you're thinking through all of these things about place, about vocation, about the aim of your life, um, you need to be asking questions about how can we do well and obey the Lord and be faithful in every aspect of our lives, every aspect of our culture, from art to education to liturgy to whatever. And uh, don't let anybody guilt you into wanting uh, fruitful, joyful Christian culture and all of those things, because you should want, you're a Christian, you should not only want that, but actually part of your evangelism is inviting the world to get out of their mud holes and stop slumming it and come enjoy some culture. <laughs> yeah. Come enjoy some real culture, you guys. Like, I don't know. Christians have done that. I've heard Christians did that at one point. They like built the West, for example. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know. And having, I think it's about having a culture that's attractive, first and foremost, like you and your family, right? But mm -hmm. I feel like one of the things I was reading an article about this, and they said one of the reasons the left, progressive lefts, LGBT community, these types of people, one of the reasons they're so successful at stealing our children is because they provide a very real sense of community. Mm -hmm. I've noticed it in my lifetime. A lot of churches have stopped doing that. I mean, mm -hmm. it's literally like, it, it's a weaker cultural force in many communities than your average book club. Like, yeah. you get more passion out of a Sunday football game watching with your neighbor mm -hmm. And, and, a, and a closer connectivity out of that than you do most local churches. So it's like, well, that's not going to transform anything. Yeah. <laughs> least of all us. Right. Oh, we have so to true. have more cultural engine than that. I, yeah, I think we're, I mean, I, we just say this all the time. Like we're Christians. So fill in the blank. We're Christians. So of course we should know how to be humans. Like we're being remade in the image <laughs> of the perfect one. We're being remade in the image of the only perfect man ever. So Yeah. Come on, like we should know, and again, not in a works righteousness, perform good enough for our culture or you will be on the outside. No, we're Christians again. And so we're, hum we're confessing our sin. We're growing in grace. We're, we are absolutely sinners. We're absolutely in process. We don't, in lots of places in the culture, we don't know what we're doing yet. We're figuring it. We're bumbling around, running in the walls in the dark and going, yeah. oh, how do we figure this thing out? Like, how do we figure out music and how do we figure out work and vocation and business. But it's like, we're Christians. That should, that statement should absolutely just juice us, you know, like get us, get us going and fire us up and be like, that's right. 
we're Christians. We know how to do community. Duh. We're a body. We're the body of Christ on earth. <laughs> right. Of course, we, we better know how to do community better than the gay football club down the street that's probably discussing <laughs> some Oprah's book list nonsense. Like, gosh, it's, you know, can I get an amen? Oh, <laughs> amen. If, if Chuck amen, Knox Pastor were here, he would have to be like playing his little org. <laughs> I feel, I feel that. <laughs> that's you know, exactly. That's, that's what we need right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm a... Uh... We need a little less, you know, we used to say in the Presbyterian church, um, if you raise your hand, you better have a question. <laughs> you should. We need a less of that. No, a little more, a little more chalk knocks in the, hear, uh, in the presence of the assembly. You should hear the kids at, at refuge singing, uh, all hail the power of Jesus name when they get to the crown, crown oh. hymns. Oh boy. Just let it go. Kids. Key optional. Unleash. <laughs> key is optional. The key is, yeah, optional. Right. The key is choose your own. <laughs> Choose your own adventure. <laughs> Choose but your man, own. But man, it's like, and, I love and that's it. actually a good little, I'll stop talking, but that, that's kind of a good little snapshot, I think, of when we're talking about culture, that can be sort of vague. I mean, real things like learning how to sing well together as a church is a project we've been working on for a few years and, and continue to work on. And, and we're not arrived, we're like getting started, I think. Um, but there's such a satisfaction as a people, not a lot of people even, you know, not a, not a huge number of people at this church. But there's such a satisfaction on a Sunday when we sing a song well and loudly and with conviction, and it's a song worth singing, and you, you just made something. You just made something that most people in your community have, could not hope to do. Sing a song. I mean, it's, it's small, but together. Sing a song well together. We can do that. Yeah. We can make that. And why do we do it? Well, because we're worshiping the Lord. And I think that, you know, some of these aspects of culture, Brian, are obvious, like, well, at least to us, you know, singing Mm -hmm. and particularly singing psalms and singing the, singing is in some form or fashion, like most churches are like, yeah, we should do that. Yeah. But one of the things that I would point to uh, with your wife, uh, with Dan's wife, I've been in both your homes. I really appreciate what it does to culture when like you have a a spirit and an atmosphere where wives are like really practicing the art of being like exquisite craftsmen of the home, like the way they make their meals, um, you know, the way that food is prepared and set before you. And, Mm. and it can be so different. I mean, you know, the meals we have at your house, uh, the meals we have at Dan's house are very different, but just the hospitality, the warmth, the generosity, that's what I mean about culture where you leave my wife and I both like you leave and we're like, I want that. Yeah. And I miss that. Yeah. And I need that. Um, that those are some of the elements of culture that really is transformative. Mm, yes. The cult, the, the glories of culture are things that seem to a pragmatist unnecessary. Like, <laughs> right. You didn't need that. And you're like, yeah, but I have a beautiful wife who works hard loves the Lord and loves people. And so she's going to, she's going to do beautiful things. She's not just going to put the correct number of calories in front of everybody. She loves the Lord. She's a Christian. And so she's going to, you know, adorn, she's going to make beauty there. And as you, you know, as people are thinking through this conversation of relocating, I, I, I would want to encourage them as well. When you arrive somewhere, the goal should be that you force, you're a force multiplier in that place. You mm. show up and it's easy to show up and be like, man, 
there was, we were in a desert and now, you know, here we are and there's, there's good, there's water to drink, but do drink and, and then pour out, go and enrich Mm. the culture and build there. And you will find so much satisfaction in, um, you know, in the name of Jesus for the glory of Christ with the things Mm. he's given you pouring out for your brothers and sisters and, and, and unbaptized neighbors as well. And, you know, that's just, that's when things really, I think, start to go parabolic in, in, um, in joy and satisfaction. Man, that's awesome. Well, hearty amen to that. Again, Pastor Brian Sauvé, thanks so much for joining me on this episode. We'll, of course, give links to some of the materials, resources we talked about of yours and Refuge Church. Definitely encourage people to check that out. So again, Brian, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Eric. Always a pleasure. God bless you and uh, uh, hope to come back on soon and and ramble some more with you. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks, Brian. (laughs) You got it. Well, thanks again. And until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like 